Welcome to We Are DB. I am Brenton, joined by Danielle. That's me. Hello. Thanks for joining us this week as we count up the IMDb's best movies of all time and discuss some of the greatest films you mightn't ever have seen. This week, rated as number 11 on the internet movie database by millions of film lovers from around the world, is The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Released in 2001, starring Elijah Wood and Ian McKellen, among a giant cast, The Fellowship of the Ring is an epic fantasy film set in the magical world of Middle-earth. It is the first of three parts of the Lord of the Rings film series. Based on the novel by J.R.R. Tolkien, of the same name, published in 1954, The Fellowship of the Ring was co-written, co-produced, and directed by Peter Jackson. The novel was written as a sequel to The Hobbit, published in 1937, and he spent nearly 20 years writing the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But although there are slight references for people who have read The Hobbit, it's not really necessary, and this is a fine starting place into the series. Now, because the third part, The Return of the King, is the first one that appears in the IMDb list, um, because it's the best one, we've already covered quite a lengthy discussion about Tolkien and the trilogy as a whole in episode 7. So um, anything that's spoiler-free is going to be in the first 20 minutes or so of that, and I would highly recommend anyone listening to this go listen to that because that's where we talk about um, his work and the trilogy as a whole, and we make some arguments as to why the Lord of the Rings trilogy is the best movie trilogy ever made. Episode 7. It's pretty great. (laughs) I'm actually really surprised at how well I know this movie. I think I've seen it like eight times now. I'm surprised at how much I remembered and also how much I remembered about it simply because we watched Return of the King first. That's interesting. Well, you've seen this through once and then we watched Return of the King and now this. Yeah, but like I remembered a lot of this story more than I remembered Return of the King, maybe because this was my very first introduction into Lord of the Rings. Um, But I remembered even names that I wasn't expecting to remember. It was more noticeable to me this time around watching it, how many references there actually are to The Hobbit. So even though The Fellowship of the Ring is the first of technically six movies, if you include The Hobbit trilogy, that was made... Because the book was the sequel to The Hobbit, there's a lot of references in there that if you came back after watching or reading The Hobbit, you'd be like, oh, that's what that that's a reference to. There's actually quite a few more of those moments in there than I remember. If you're referring to that incident with the dragon, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, even the fact that Gandalf actually knows Bilbo and he calls him his old friend. If this is your first introduction to the series or the world of Middle Earth, you'd be like, "What are you talking about? What's that? What's that a reference?" Or to? you take it for granted. You don't. You don't think it's because of anything in particular. Yeah. For me, that's how there's, I kind of um, interpreted it before. There's a uh, actually quite a few of those references to things that happened in the Hobbit, and I think when this was filmed and released in 2001, those were more references for people who had read the book. Um, it's just interesting that they're in there, even though there is no previous movie. It's a sequel to a movie that doesn't exist yet. That said, I think they included some really good ones. Like, I don't know if they did that with the intention of making the Hobbit movie, because those... I don't think they did. 
those references are really easy to follow for me, having never read the books. Yeah, I think they were just extras for people who had read the books. Yeah. Because there's the the stone trolls as well. There's the They do cover the origin story a little bit as to how Bilbo got the ring and the, the story there. Um, and they do have that flashback where he's younger and he finds the ring in Gollum's cave. I was just thinking, like, if this was the Star Wars series, they would have put Martin Freeman in that and re- redid it uh, because he was the guy who played young Bilbo in the Hobbit trilogy. Mm. Because you know, oh, what, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know what they did with Hayden Christensen in the last original Star Wars movie? Mm-hmm. They put him back in there. I think it just translated really well in terms of when they did make The Hobbit. So when I think they probably looked at the original movies and kind of thought, okay, because there was a lot of elements that you very clearly can make those links like, oh, that's in yeah. The Hobbit and that's in The Hobbit. Yeah, because when you watch The Hobbit, you're like, oh, that's what that means from yeah. the original trilogy from 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. No, they did that, obviously, intentionally. Yeah. I think this is a this is a pretty good start to the series. Um, every time I start this movie, I don't know, I get a really good feeling because I know this is the beginning of the series and you've got that music and you you know what's going to happen sort of thing and you sort of feel for them. It kind of reminds me of the first episode of Game of Thrones um, because when you watch that, which is also a fantasy uh, series, obviously, you've got this family and they're living in Winterfell and mm. they're just sort of like living this life. There's a few things happening and you just get this feeling of like you have no idea what's about to happen because that's that series and the people have seen it and the characters and the families have changed so much through that series. They just seem sort of naive and innocent when you first watch that first episode. Mm. I sort of get that feeling when I see the hobbits in the first one you're like you have no idea what what's actually going to happen on this massive journey and that said i feel like the plot actually becomes quite intense very quickly in the movie okay like it goes from okay bilbo's having a birthday party and now they're getting chased by riders in black you know what i mean like i feel like it escalated very quickly which is fine it's just something i noticed yeah i kind of feel like the Fellowship of the Ring is kind of just one part of a movie, kind of like in the way part one of Deathly Hallows or part one of Mockingjay. Kind of like a half of a movie in the sense that it doesn't have a beginning, middle, end. The main climax of this whole movie is Frodo getting stabbed. And I've always felt ever since the beginning that that's always such a hollow thing because I'm like, well, I know that there's two more of these movies. He's going to be fine. Yeah, It, it just feels empty there. While the climax of the other two movies are the massive battles at Helm's Deep and Minas Tirith. It's odd because for me, I don't know how I feel about them as standalones. Because again, my experience of them is that this isn't one two-hour movie. It's a 12-hour movie. It is 12 hours, right? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. It's it's like 11 and a half. And to me, it plays out like it's a 12-hour movie. So, you know, at the end of The Fellowship of the Ring, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to move on to the next one because the story's not anywhere near complete yet. You know what I mean? They're not exactly sequels. And we mentioned that in the Return of the King discussion. Mm. Um, They are parts of one movie. My question is, would you consider Deathly Hallows Part 1 a movie or the first half of one massive movie? The latter. Okay. Yeah. I've just heard arguments and discussions about... Um, trying to remember if I've even seen that. I think I have. You haven't seen Deathly Hallows? 
I think I have. I'm a Potter it's, maniac. So it's I like the only have. movie that they don't go to Hogwarts. It's really the quite thing strange. Is that I read, not much happens. <laughs> I read the books, right? So I didn't feel the need. I don't know. I can't remember. I okay. probably That's did. Just I remember the end of part two in the movie. I think, particularly in that scenario, they should stand alone to some extent. And if they don't, then it's not... It's better value and better quality films if they are able to stand alone. Yeah. Um, I would appreciate it and not just get a movie where literally nothing happens. Yeah, that it's just a bridger. Yeah. Yeah, because then it's only part of the pop culture phenomenon. And you know yes. what I mean? And so the money makers are the first and third, which is kind of what I experienced with Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't like the second one at all. The third one is terrible. What are you talking about? I know, but I mean, if the second one's worse, because nothing happens. Uh, I like how they incorporated the Davy Jones and the Flying Dutchman, which is um, all in that old pirate law sort of thing. Mm. Anyway, the, the, the Pirates of the Caribbean series is terrible. <laughs> I don't know. I think the second X-Men movie was pretty good as well. I don't think Fellowship is as bad as Deathly Hallows Part 1, as an example. It does stand alone a little bit better than that, but I don't think it stands alone as well as the 2 and 3. I think there's more structure. Yeah. Structurally, I think this whole series did a good job because they, they all can stand alone, but at the same time, they all flow as part of one large entity very well. Yeah. And that's... Like, good on you, Peter Jackson. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that everything that goes wrong in a lot of these movies, particularly this first one, is those damn hobbits. Every, yes! Every time something goes wrong, it's just like, Mary and Pippin. hobbits. Yeah. Well, it's not necessarily just them, but it's like the, all four of them. If something goes wrong, it's fucking hobbits. There's so many moments where you just see Gandalf, like, it's a... It pans to him and he's just like, oh, fuck. You know what I mean? Like, you can just see it in his face. He's like, oh, my God. Yeah. He's just... There was something in this one that I noticed that I hadn't before. It is his genuine fear when he's going into the Mines of Mario because he, kn- he knows of the Belrogs in there. And you don't usually see that. I think it's the only time. Uh, maybe maybe towards the end with Minas Tirith Battle where he looks genuinely afraid of what's going to happen because he knows what's in the mines and no one else mm. does. And I, I picked up on that more than, than before. If you look at the subtleties in his face, I really love Gandalf as a character. He, I think he's my favorite. I think this whole series has such great casting. Oh, yeah. Like Ian McKellen in that role was just perfect. There's no one who feels shallow. You know what I mean? All of the characters are very deep and well-rounded and... You know, you don't feel like, oh, maybe someone else could have done this. Yeah. They feel very well-rounded and they feel very fleshed out. And I like that. And I think that has to do with the people who are cast. Do you find Aragorn attractive? Yes. Because I I think he's very handsome in this, right? Like, he's a good-looking guy. Mm-hmm. But I've never heard someone say, oh, that Vigo Mortensen, you know, like no one really seemed to care. And I'm like, am I the only one who's looking at this guy? You He's mean like historically. Yeah. Uh, even when, yeah. They, even when they came out in the last Nobody's like, 15 Whoo! years, it's never on the tip of your tongue when you're talking about hot guys. Right. And I'm like, um, have you seen the Lord of the Rings? And yeah. I don't think he's really been like that in a lot of the other performances that he's given. But I just always remembered that. And I'm like, am I the only one seeing this? Like. 
No, you're not the only one. <laughs> okay. Seeing this. There's at least was, two of us. There was never been a discussion around that, and I'm, I just thought that was interesting. Actually, he does have women all over him in this whole series, doesn't he? Well, two. Three. Who's the third? I thought there was a third. I don't know. I mentioned this in the Return of the King discussions where I like to watch the extended editions because I feel like I like to get those little things and those little character developments. But I think particularly for this one, you kind of need the extended editions because they add in scenes of such character development. And because this is the first one, there's a lot of that introduction sort of scenes where you're, you're being introduced to the characters. So... Um, and if you had more of those scenes in there, it just adds to it and you get to know them better. So which scenes were added? Because I don't remember. I don't think you've ever seen the theatrical version, so oh, okay. you wouldn't know. Okay. But if you watched it now, you'd be like, oh, wait, they, why did they just cut out that whole scene? That was like really important. Yeah. Okay, I wouldn't say it's really important, but it's important to character development mm-hmm. and um, getting the sense of the setting. There's establishing ones for um, Mary and Pippin, where they're just sort of getting an idea as to who these characters are. Mm. There was one after Gandalf died with, with um, Sam. Oh, or he's talking about the flowers. Yeah, the he was talking yeah. about paying tribute to Gandalf and his mourning and the way he interpreted that. Um, there's just a little things in there. I think there's a little bit more back and forth between Gimli and Legolas in mm. there so see that rivalry even is a reference to the hobbit right you wouldn't know okay why is this dwarf being so racist to the elves mm. but they have such a long history that you wouldn't get uh unless you'd seen the hobbit mm. it's just in little things in there that for this one i would recommend the extended edition i really think new zealand is a great film location oh, for this God. like the amount of the variance of the locations that they do over this whole series is really quite impressive. You get some really eerie places. Well, I just, I remember, I turned to you and I said, did they do this whole thing in New Zealand? Because I had no idea that it looked like that. Because, like, talking about variation, like you said, they go from mountains and snow to forests to, you know, lake lands to marshlands. Yeah. I'm like, this is... This I'm is the pretty, stuff of fantasy, this. I'm pretty sure it's all in New Zealand. It was very impressive. I didn't know it looked like that. I, I had no idea. I thought it looked more like Australia for some reason, but it's pretty far south, isn't it? It's like cold Australia. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's kind. It's got a very similar landscape to, like you said, England and parts of Canada, I reckon. Mm. Have we talked much about the architectural influences in this series at all. No, and I think Tolkien does a great job at character building and world building, the way he does his styles. And like we mentioned in Return of the King, where you've got the Knights of Gondor and the Riders of Rohan, and even though they're both races of men, that they feel different because of the way they're dressed and the way the weapons that they use and the buildings that they have. So that's just even in the same race, let alone comparing orcs to elves to hobbits to dwarves. He, he's just done a great job, and so has the filming crew in able to make all these props and feelings. I think it's really impressive because the two main conflicting uh, races of this are the elves and dwarves, and you see that mostly mm. in the Hobbit book and movies. And I've just, everything about them feels. 
opposite. opposite, really. You've got dwarves that are short and stout, and you've got these elves that are long and lanky, and they've got long hair, you know. They're, like, elegant. Um, the architecture is very flowy, you know. It's very nature-based. It's, nature like, fairy-like, almost. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's a lot of... There's a lot of uh, twisting and intertwining elements and long and slender shapes that come to points and things like that. Yeah. And then you've got the dwarves that's very blocky. Straight lines. Yeah, straight yeah. lines, geometric, solid looking. That's the that's the biggest thing for me is that elven architecture looks very intricate and delicate and dwarven architecture looks very sturdy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, the elves very much were based on the Art Nouveau architecture mm-hmm. of the late 1800s and the dwarves were based on the art deco of the 1920s you sort of get the great gatsby kind of geometric shapes Mm -hmm. and things in the styles Uh, i think it's interesting that the elves were based in the trees and the dwarves are based on the ground sort of thing well and that would be part of that would be um canonical influences of those mystical creatures but it's it's cool i don't think dwarves have been known to be underground canonically have they they're known to be miners They are. Like, remember Snow White? Right, Snow White, yes. Okay. But even the the weapons that they use, Mm. the elves use bows with string and and arrows, and the dwarves use hammers and axes, you know, like big, hard, sturdy things. And you you can see that in their musical instruments as well. Mm. The elves were using string instruments and the dwarves using drums. Mm -hmm. Every little element of these two things has been thought about, you know, Mm -hmm. and they conflict with each other and... And you do see that, and I think it's just brilliant the way that it, that's done. Mm. Um, like, even the hobbits, in comparison, even though they do live underground and they are short and stout little creatures, they're not dwarves. They're very different to, to dwarves. I've come to the conclusion, you know, Charles Boyle from Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Mm-hmm. He's a hobbit. <laughs> he's, a, he's a hobbit-looking guy who loves his family, loves food. He's, like, awkward. He just needs bigger feet. He's very much just a hobbit character. Isn't yeah. He? yeah. Yeah. The ring race or the uh, the Nazgul? Mm-hmm. Was it the Nazgul the dragons that they were flying on? No, I think that's, what do you call that? The Mordorian word, the language of whatever that language is. So what is. are the dragons that they fly around on then? I don't know. Something else, just a yeah. dragon, big snake but, dragon. like the Nazgul is the word in that language. Okay, I thought that that was the creature, not the uh, ring race. Okay. Yeah. They kind of suck at looking for this ring, don't they? Well, for for that being their only purpose in life, yeah. Yeah, they could, they've been so close to it, and they can smell it, and they have all this. They keep talking about how they their number one goal is to like hunt this thing down, and they're kind of just. It keeps escaping their clutches. Yeah. Well, Frodo jumps on the ferry, and it's like, well, you're on a horse, man, just. Jump. Jump, you know? Yeah. Are you afraid of water? Well, they, they kind of are seen as afraid of water, aren't they? Because they don't want to go over the river later on. It's like, yeah. ooh, the horse's feet got wet, you know? I don't know what that's about. And Arwen's like right there. Um, I just thought, these guys don't really seem very menacing. They were chasing her for quite some time now, I think about it. And they never caught up with her. They, they're they not very terrifying because they, they, they kind of suck at their job, you know? Yeah. I mean... I still would be terrified. Yes, I mean, they're meant to look they're terrifying. They're menacing is all, everything. Because they don't eat, they don't sleep, they just hunt this thing down. Yeah. And it sounds terrifying until you see them in action, and it's like, oh, I can just hide behind this log and you can't see me. 
Unless they actually catch you, though. Yeah. Because then you become undead. Well, they did catch him on top of the that ruined tower. Mm. They very slowly moved in on these hobbits, like hobbits of all things. Mm. They did stab Frodo, but the ring was right there. Yeah. They, I don't know. They were just scared off with a with a fiery Fire. stick. Yeah, I don't know. They just they just don't seem very fleshed out characters. They might have been in the books and they look terrifying, but um, there's just not really much substance to them. I think that's the point. <laughs> and they don't they don't really come back in the next. Well, they do, but they're not. They're, they're definitely the main villain of this. Yeah. With um Saruman being the second villain sort of thing, while Saruman's definitely the main villain of the second one. Yeah. I wanted to talk about how, like, their costume design, because I think it is very menacing, and it's very mysterious. They kind of just look like black ghosts, except for what you can see of them, and I think that's part of what makes them terrifying. So you can't see their face, but you can see their hands and their feet, and they've got these gauntlets that are just all yeah shiny and sharp, you know what well, I mean? Well, I wouldn't say you'd be able to see their hand. Because they're wearing that armor. Well, but you can see the armor on their hand. Yes. You know what I mean? And you can see the gauntlets on their boots, too, and there's just this really harsh point at the end of their toes, right? And they've got almost, like, claws almost. And I think that's an interesting choice to do and an interesting juxtaposition because you don't know what you're dealing with, but what you can see is terrifying. And the rest is mystery. Do you know what I mean? I like the the scene where he puts the ring on. You can actually see sort of faces. I mean, they're all distorted and things, but that's the first time you actually, like, put some sort of uh, identity to these things. Yeah, and they're still terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. For a movie that's called The Fellowship of the Ring, The Fellowship doesn't last very long at all. No. Like, they, they established The Fellowship after the halfway point of the movie, and then by the end of it, it's dissipated i was gonna say two people have died and then they're split in half yeah two of the hobbits have been taken off another two have gone off on their own and then the three are going to rescue the rest of them and two are dead yeah yeah because the return of the king was the last one of these that we watched before episode seven it's interesting to me that that moment at the end of this movie is the last time they see each other at all actually until the end of return of king that's crazy. For I hadn't en- thought of it. They like were that. split up for the entire second movie. How frustrating. It is, because you see at the beginning of Return of the King, everyone's like, I have no idea what has happened to Frodo. You know, is that guy mm-hmm. still alive? I'm pretty sure we would know if the enemy has the ring by now. But the- it's interesting because the very next time, I think it's the next time that Aragorn and uh, Legolas and Gimli see the two hobbits is when they're sitting on the the wall of Isengard and they're sitting yeah. there and they're like drinking ale and eating yeah. cheese and it's like we've been running around the countryside for ages looking for you guys and uh, I just think that's that's funny but they are split up for a lot of the series yeah which makes it interesting I think it, it makes for a lot of bouncing around for yeah what's going on here and what's going on there it makes it more interesting a big assumption that the movie has that is probably just a wink to the people who've read the books is Gandalf's relationship with the eagles. He gets yeah. off the top of that tower because he grabs a moth. moth and whispers a spell to it or something, and then all of a sudden an eagle comes and saves him. It's like, what was that all about? Mm-hmm. 
And they show up at the end of The Return of the King and save... Frodo and Sam. Frodo and Sam. And they're also helping the dwarves in the in the Hobbit trilogy. It's never explained in any of the six movies what's going on there. And it's like, what are you talking about? Hmm. And an argument that I've always heard is, why didn't they just fly the eagles all the way to Mordor from the beginning? Mm-hmm. Or at least for big stretches of it until the eagles can get them further. Why would you walk this whole way? And from the articles that I've read from people who have read the books is that was always sort of Gandalf's plan was to go through a certain amount of the journey on foot to teach them certain perils and to get around Saruman's eye um, and then use the You mean Sauron's eye? No, Saruman. He can still see where they are. Okay. He has spies everywhere, right? Yeah. So he's trying to get around the spies. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, for a great deal of it, towards the end there, use the eagles. Okay. Right? So, he's keeping that secret. He's he's doing his own thing where he's like, okay, I have this plan. We're going to go this far on foot and we're going to do the rest by the eagles. Mm-hmm. But that plan is thrown into turmoil when they go through the mines and the Belrog shows up. So, that's why he was always like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Nah, nah, I'm not going to go. Th- I mean, he was trying to avoid the Belrog anyway. Um, because based on the law, they're evenly matched, right? Yeah. Which is why Gandalf is able to stand up against this giant fire-breathing demon. Um, but that's why when he gets dragged down and he's hanging off the cliff, he says, fly, you fools. Uh, uh... And then he gets dragged down. And he's like, i got to go deal with this. And I never understood why he just let go, but that was... I understand now that that was sort of his task. He's like, i got to go deal with this. Mm-hmm. So he's just like, let's go. But he's like, seriously... I always intended you guys to fly. Fly, you fools. Don't walk, you know. I could be completely wrong and just going off on a tangent, um, but that's an interesting theory because that line makes no sense otherwise. Yeah. Um, And I'm just sort of relying on the people that wrote this article. Um, If I am wrong in that because I haven't read the books, please tell me what the hell that means and what his relationship is with the Eagles because it was my uh, understanding that he had that idea in mind from the beginning what did you want to talk about saruman i just wanted to look at because we had been discussing during watching the movie when did he actually decide that it was going to be beneficial for him to become evil i was wondering that too now i thought it was when gandalf went and saw him and said the ring is back the one that bilbo had is the one ring um it's been hiding out in hobbiton this whole time and no one knew which i don't believe that gandalf didn't know for starters Um, Yeah. But I think that's the point where he's like, oh, okay. But then... But then he goes into the tower and he's... He's like, I've been looking at the seeing orb for like months already. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's like, I've already got this orb and I'm... Also, the ring rates uh, have been released and they're on their way right now. So, I don't know. If he had turned bad before Gandalf had got there, which is what it seems like... Why was he just sitting around for sixty years? Like that's how long Bilbo's had this ring for. Why yeah, all of a sudden? Because he it... didn't know where it was. He he didn't. Saruman didn't know where it yes, was. Yes, that's my point. Is if he starts launching this attack and turning evil and building an army and all of that progression after Gandalf tells him where it is, then how did he have all this other stuff prepared? Yeah, like he was immediately ready to turn on Gandalf and capture him. I think he had been seeing that Sauron had been growing stronger 
And then he realized, oh my God, okay, I know where this is. This is helpful for me because then he stands up on the top of the tower, remember, and he says, I give myself to you. He says that to Sauron. So why is Sauron, the names are so confusing. Sauron, Sauron, I've never been able to, whatever. Why is Sauron growing in power now? Sauron hasn't had the ring for like three and a half thousand years. Other people have, right? Gollum had it for 500 years. Yes, no one can find Gollum in the cave, but it's been hanging out in Hobbiton for 60 years. Why all of a sudden is everything happening? Is it all because Bilbo put the ring on for that stupid magic trick? No, because he would have put it on at some other points. Yeah, maybe it's explained, but I just missed it. What sparks these events? Like, it just all of a sudden seems like this is happening now. The fact that they caught Gollum and figured out, like, got intel from him... I don't know how Gandalf knew that they had captured Gollum and interrogated him. And the two words that he told were Baggins and Shire. Like, how does Gandalf know any of that? Maybe he's got wizard telepathy. I don't know. Because that's how Saruman knows is because he's got that orb. He can actually see it. Yeah, but Gandalf doesn't have an orb. And he's very wary whenever the orb is is around. Hmm. There's a lot of establishing knowledge there that I sort of just assume now because I've seen it so many times. I'm like, oh, that's what happens. But if I actually think about it, the first time I watched it, I'm like, wait, wait, why is this happening? And that's not really explained, I don't think, in the films. Maybe there's a lot of assumption that you've read the book, which is never a good assumption for a movie maker to make. Yeah. And I think generally he didn't assume that. but No, but it's not clear is my point. I have a question about... Is it Arwen, the the elf? Yep. Daughter of Elrond? Yep. Is her mortality in that star necklace thing that she's got? Because it's a really big deal, like it's a symbol of something, and she gives it over to Aragorn, and then she's like, oh, I'm giving up my mortality, and he's I like, I can't accept this, yeah. yeah. And then I'm pretty sure she's mortal by the end of the whole series, at the end of Return of the King. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that it, because of the necklace was smashed. Am I making that link out of nothing or is that actually something? Well, I'm not sure because he keeps having these visions of the necklace breaking. Like it shows that how many times? In the third one, it shows it two or three times. Yeah. And then it actually happens. And then it actually happens. Yes. See, if that was someone's mortality, you know. I would not be fucking wearing that around my neck. I would be... Or in the scene there that it breaks, they're very careless with it. Yeah. I would be locking that shit up, you know? So if there is no link there and I just picked it up from looking at the movies, then it, it's a little unclear what is the significance of that necklace then. I think it might just be a token. Yeah. It's a symbolic, here's my love. Yeah. I don't know. And my life. Yeah. yeah. How does she give up her mortality then? In order to be with him. The whole relationship with Aragorn and Arwen seems sort of tacked on in this as well, doesn't it? I don't think so. You don't think so? I think I think it's just an extra my... thing. It's like, oh, okay, why are we talking about this now? My question is, how does he live for so long? Because he's like 80. I forget that. He's in his late 80s, but he looks so young. I think it's explained... In it, the second one? It has to, It has something to do with the fact that he's, like, raised with the elves. Maybe. Because, I forget. Because you see him go and visit his mother's grave at Rivendell. Yes. And it kind of talks about it a little bit. She brought him there because he wasn't safe, because he was the only living heir 
to the throne of Gondor. So she took him away so that nothing bad could happen to him and people wanting to take over the throne or something. Um, Was his mom an elf? No. He's human. I know, but he would get his humanness from his father. Mm. I just thought, is there a bit of elf in him? I'm pretty sure it's all explained in the second one. We'll just have to watch it again because okay. I don't remember. Even in the the Hobbit trilogy, towards the end of the last movie of that, they talk about a young ranger mm. who's living with the elves and they're obviously referring to Aragorn because he's so old. Mm-hmm. He would have been... He would have been 20. Yeah. Speaking about the mortality of the elves, has nothing changed in society in three and a half thousand years? Because they show flashbacks of that battle, and Elrond's there, and he sees the ring. Yeah, get and it cut. looks the same. It looks the same, right? Like they've they haven't even really changed their armor. And I know civilization in the real world changed quite a bit in three and a half thousand years. Is there no progression there? I don't know. I don't understand. I'm not sure. They just have no need to progress, I guess. Mm. Like if I were an elf that was who knows four thousand years old. Would you not possess all of the knowledge in the world because you've just... you lived for so long. You've lived so many lifetimes, essentially. Maybe that's why they are seen as such wise characters. Probably. And they look down on mortal creatures because of that, don't they? They are kind of snobby. <laughs> yeah. I'll give them that. I swear, it's a good movie. You know, it's full of plot holes, but, mm. you know, <laughs> it's a great series. It's, it's really quite an accomplishment. I think so. I think so. It's one of those series where you would appreciate it more if you've read the books, not less. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's a lot of winks and nods. And if he didn't directly adapt it, um, or like using a character here and there, he'll use it later on in a different way. Like it's it's still used in there and it's very respectful. Well, and something I'd like to point out as well is that, you know, in reading, I read a lot of fantasy books growing up. And watched the movies of those books and you always say, oh, like the movie doesn't do it justice. Part of it being because it's not long enough to fit it all in there. That is not an issue (laughs) with this series. Yes. They took one book and put it into 12 hours, 12 hours of film. You you fit pretty much all of it in there. And yet The Hobbit is the opposite problem. They get one book and turn it into nine and a half hours. I think those are added up. Mm. Um, and they had to add so much filler in there, and it's like, no, how about you do maybe two parts max, but put one book into one movie, you'll be fine, and mm. then they stretched it out and padded it out. Yeah, it's pretty much the opposite problem that most people have when they're adapting books. I think Peter Jackson, in general, has a more respective approach when he's coming to remakes and, and adaptions. I think he's better than someone like Tim Burton. When he comes to his remakes, he did... Uh, Alice in Wonderland. He did Alice in Wonderland. He did Planet of the Apes. He did, Char- he did the Chocolate Planet Factory. Of the Apes. Yeah, it's... His approach to movies is like, I didn't like the original, so therefore I'm going to change every bit about it into the style that I like. I was like. going to say Tim Burton style. Yeah, yeah, and that's a terrible approach when you're remaking things. I really, really like this series. You should go watch it. <laughs> that's basically how I feel about it. I, I love fantasy, and I love... I love Lord of the Rings... I can't wait till I have a minute to actually go read the books. We have been Daniel and Brenton this week. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or comment on SoundCloud. And until next week, thanks for listening.
sake. I can't even talk. Um. So the big. Just make a. Oh my god. I don't even know how you did that. <laughs>